Welcome to Kevin Connor's podcast. This current series of messages is on the book of Acts, showing its relevance for today as a pattern book for the operation of the Holy Spirit through the church. Be sure also to get a copy of Kevin's commentary on the book of Acts. Visit kevinconnor.org for details. Now, let's turn our Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 27 and chapter 28. And we find that these uh, final chapters actually cover Paul's journey by ship to Rome. And uh, we have uh, just a few details of the last events in the book of Acts. And of course, it's interesting to remember that the book of Acts has no amen to it. Because uh, unlike the epistles that Paul wrote, most of them finish with amen and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the book of Acts is still being written today in the history of the church. And uh, we won't hear that final amen until we stand before the presence of the Lord. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 27 and 28, we find uh, that there are two major lessons in this chapter that uh, we're going to be picking up, along with a lot of uh, uh, lesser lessons, but uh, there's two major lessons that we're going to be looking at. So uh, let's uh, just make a note of these as we introduce uh, our series tonight, uh, se- uh, sessions tonight. So the first uh, major lesson we note in Acts chapter 27 and 28 is uh, the sovereignty of God over all things and the perfect will of God being done in spite of uh, men. In Revelation chapter 17, 17, which I believe is a very important verse when it comes to the sovereignty of God, we're told here that uh, in relation to the, the Antichrist kingdom, it says, For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. So without violating the will of man, God is able to put it into the hearts of men to fulfill his will and to agree and give uh, whatever he wants. So there's something in the sovereignty of God that uh, we have to recognize that God can put into the hearts of men to fulfill his will. And so uh, in these two chapters we're going to see the sovereignty of God overruling all things. And then the second major lesson we're going to learn is this, that God can cause all things, uh, whether they be good things, bad things, things we like, things we don't like, God can cause all things to work together for good in a believer's life, even if ungodly men or unbelievers go against what you know to be God's perfect will. Uh, It was God's will for Paul to go to Rome. Paul did have a word of knowledge concerning the storm and so forth, and yet uh, the master of the ship and the centurion just uh, disobeyed that word, and and yet uh, through it all, God overruled. So let me say that lesson again. So number one, the sovereignty of God over all things and the perfect will of God being done in spite of men. And number two, God can cause all things to work together for good in a believer's life, even if ungodly men or unbelievers go against what you know to be the will of the Lord. So uh, when it comes to the will of God, we refer to uh, number one, the uh, highest level is the perfect will of God. And then number two, there's uh, what we refer to as the second level, the permitted will of God. Uh, I used to say permissive, but because permissive has become a bad word, uh, we refer to the permitted will of God, where God accommodates to man's stubborn will, and yet God can turn it to his glory. And so Paul says in Romans 8 that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, as you look at the overhead here, we see a map 
of Paul's journey to Rome and uh, you see how he came uh, uh, from uh, Caesarea and then uh, takes the ship right through and we just see his journey to Rome and then the uh, shipwreck that took place uh, and uh, how they ended up at Fair Havens and so forth and eventually got to Rome so it's just always good to look at a map of uh, Paul's journeys and we've been doing that in the first journey, the second journey, and the missionary journeys that Paul took and now his final journey to Rome. Now let's uh, look at Acts chapter 27 and just pick up some of the high spots here, that's all we can do in the time we have. We find in verse uh, 1 and 2 of Acts 27, when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners uh, unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band, and entering into a ship of uh, Admitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, and uh, here we find one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica being with us. And of course uh, there were, was uh, Luke, the beloved physician. So at least we know that there's three people in uh, uh, here that uh, are believers. We have the Apostle Paul, of course, Aristarchus, uh, Thessalonica believer, Macedonian, and then of course Luke, the beloved physician. Now, you'll notice as they uh, get in verses 1 through to 5, we have the, uh, the boarding of the first ship. And uh, remember that the ships in those days were not like uh, the ships we have in our day, like the Queen Mary or some of these uh, modern liners that we have. They're nothing to be compared. So we have to keep that in mind and don't sort of read into the Bible what we think a ship is. The ships were uh, compared, uh, compared to ships today, very flimsy. So in verses 1 through to 5, we find Paul is on the, on the ship with his friends, uh, uh, on the way to Rome. In verse 3 we find that they touch at Sidon and if you just uh, look at the map here we'll see just uh, the, uh, the main spots that Paul touched at on his uh, journey here. So we come from Caesarea through to Sidon here and uh, he was allowed to go to his friends and refresh himself and then uh, we find that they touched the other places. We sailed over the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, came to Myra, city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy and he put us there on. So there's a change of ships here. Now as you uh, follow through here, um, Paul receives a word uh, from the Lord about the, uh, the danger uh, that's going to be in the journey. And uh, so let's go to verse 9 here. But when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast uh, was now already passed, and we might just mention those of you who have uh, the marginal reference there or even some other translations may bring this out a little bit more clear. The, the fast actually refers to the, the great day of atonement and uh, the period of fasting that uh, took place on the 10th day of the 7th month in the Feast of Te uh, Tabernacles. Now, as they're there, Paul, uh, he says in verse 10, and it's quite evident that the Lord gave Paul a word of knowledge, and uh, the issue is who's going to believe who. So in verse 10, uh, Paul said, uh, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with, much, with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and the ship, but also of the lives. 
Now, look at verse 11. Uh, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And you see, the difference is that uh, the centurion believed the master of the ship, but Paul knew the master and owner of the seas. The centurion believed man, Paul believed God. And uh, so... You know, human, human nature here, the ship owner, he trusted the ability of his sailors and the make of the ship that he would, uh, he would uh, make the journey okay. And so Paul had received a word of the Lord, a word of knowledge, but uh, the issue is who do we believe? And so uh, only one man really had the mind of God here and probably took the attitude, oh, well, Paul, uh, he's, a, he's a Jew, he's a tent maker, what does he know about ships in the sea? And uh, so they, they continue their journey. Now it's interesting to notice uh, the uh, use of the word wind here. It's a, um, it's a sort of a key word in these verses here. So as you uh, glance over verse 13, we notice sort of the, uh, just the deception going by their senses. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had, obta- had obtained their purpose, loosing thence they sailed close uh, to Crete. And so you can follow the map up here as they follow uh, along here, up here to Crete. And so, um, uh, you know, everything just looked great. The south wind is blowing softly, and uh, just so they thought, oh, well, what does Paul know about anything? And so they were actually deceived. But they didn't see what God saw, and God saw the coming storm. And you see, there's uh, always spiritual lessons to be learned here. It's easy to be deceived by soft south winds and only God knows the future and God only knows where the storm's going to strike and uh, it'll test the ability of the best sailor. Now notice in, uh, in these verses here the use of the word winds and uh, it's quite an interesting little study in itself. In verse 4 uh, we're told the winds were contrary so think of contrary winds and in verse 7 we're told uh, uh, the wind not suffering us, little winds here, the winds didn't suffer them there. Then in verse 13, we have the south wind blowing softly. And then in verse 14, not long after there arose against a tempestuous wind called Euclidon, uh, actually a typhoon. And so tempestuous winds. And then in verse 15, when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. So, you know, it's interesting just to, uh, to look at what the Bible says about the word winds. Let's turn over to a couple of verses in the book of Psalms on this matter. And uh, we're going to see, as I said, that the first lesson here is the sovereignty of God uh, over all things. And the perfect will of God is going to be done in spite of men. In uh, Psalms 140, uh, 48... And verse 8, we have uh, just an interesting word here. It says, uh, the psalmist says, Concerning the winds, stormy winds fulfilling his word. Stormy winds fulfilling his word. In Psalm 147 and verse 18, uh, we're told, He sendeth out his word and melteth them. That's the snow. He causeth his wind to blow and the waters to flow. So God can cause stormy winds. The stormy winds are going to fulfill his word. And so we have this. Now, as you continue in the book of Acts, uh, we find that as they uh, continue on in the storm here, all hope of being saved was taken away. 
And uh, so the Lord used that, see, because they were so confident and didn't listen to the word of the Lord through an apostle. So in verse uh, 20 we're told, When neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. So the Lord is sort of bringing them to a sense of helplessness and hopelessness, and Paul is just holding his peace here. But he's the one that's got the mind of God. And so God lets the storm come. He forewarned them of the coming storm through the Apostle Paul, but they're not uh, ready to listen. And as you go through those uh, verses here, we find that they didn't see any sun or stars for many days. And of course, see, in those days, particularly uh, navigators of ships, they depended on the sun and the moon and the stars for their guidance and uh, sense of direction. Well, all that is just blacked out, and so they're just left in the storm and left in darkness. So God had to leave them in the storm long enough because uh, before they would listen to the Apostle Paul. That's the issue. And so what you see here, the ship was caught in the wind. They were driven helplessly about. Uh, the undergirding of the ship, uh, they were fearful uh, of hitting in the quicksands and they were just driven about on the storm and typhoon and tossed with the tempest. So all the ability of men was frustrated, just that sense of helplessness uh, in the, you know, the mighty power of the wind and the sea. And uh, as you go through, they throw over the, the ship's goods, their freight, the tackling apparatus is tossed in the sea, and there's no sun, moon, or star seen for many days, so everything's just uh, the heavy storm that God is bringing upon them, as the psalmist said, stormy winds fulfilling his word. And uh, so God was going to do that until all hope of them being saved was taken away. And as I said before, God was actually permitting them to come to a place where they would believe and submit to the word that he'd given to uh, the Apostle Paul. Let's turn over to another interesting psalm, uh, Psalm 103, and uh, this psalm would be very applicable in the midst of this shipwreck here or the midst of the storm that's happening just before the shipwreck. Uh, listen to the language of Psalm 107, and we'll pick up in verse 23, and I'm reading from the uh, authorised version here, the old King James, and so uh, some very interesting verses here. All right, Psalm 107, and let's pick up in verse 23. We're told here, They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing here. He's commanding uh, the stormy wind. He's raising up the stormy wind uh, and lifting up the waves thereof. They mount up to heaven. They go down again to the depths. And so you can just imagine the tossing of the ship here, all the passengers aboard and everything like that. Their soul is melted because of trouble. And then verse 27 in uh, King James is very interesting. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man, uh, drunken man and are at their wit's end. The uh, King James marginal reference says all their wisdom is swallowed up. So these uh, guys who knew the ocean, knew the sea and everything like that, but they didn't know the uh, master of the sea. Paul knew the master of the sea. They, they knew the sea, but Paul knew the master of the sea. And so... Uh, just the whole condition here of the ship going up and down and the stormy wind and the waves and reeling to and fro like a drunken man. If, if any of you have ever uh, been on the sea, 
or on a ship uh, and ever been seasick, you can imagine the situation here. It's, it's uh, not like, as I said, an ocean liner that we have today. I have been to New Zealand several times on a ship and uh, it's pretty rugged, uh, rugged ocean between uh, Australia and New Zealand and uh, it can be a pretty, uh, pretty terrible time with uh, seasickness and the ship uh, rolling to and fro. And so here it says they are at their wits end. So all their wisdom is swallowed up. They come to their wits end. And that's exactly what the Lord uh, wanted to happen. Now, it's just uh, interesting to note here that um, as you study the scripture, there are actually uh, three sources of storms in, uh, in, in life, in just in, uh, in uh, human uh, living. And uh, we have to discern... Uh, what is the source of the storm? We know that God is over all and uses everything for his glory, but uh, we have three sources of storms in the scripture, and it's worthy to note what's going on here. Number one, the first source of a storm is uh, storms that Satan brings on us. Uh, in Luke chapter 8 and verse 22 to 25, Luke 8 verse 22 to 25, for those who are taking down reference, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go over unto the other side. And uh, so they get onto the ship, and of course Jesus uh, is weary with ministry, and so he falls asleep. And so all of a sudden a storm arose, a stormy wind, and the disciples get into a panic, and uh, after trying to uh, bail out the water and everything like that, they come and woke up Jesus and said, don't you care that we perish? You know, we're in the middle of a storm and you're just fast asleep. And what did Jesus do? We're told that Jesus rebuked the storm. He rebuked the wind and rebuked the waves. And uh, he, uh, immediately there was a great calm. Now, who was Jesus rebuking? Who was the cause of that storm? Quite evident it was a storm that Satan uh, brought on the disciples and Jesus in the boat. And the disciples said, you know, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waters obey him? And so here was Jesus, the master of the sea. Uh, the disciples, all they could see was the wind and the sea and the waters and the storm, but they didn't uh, see Jesus, who was the master of the storm. And so he rebuked the storm. So I believe that was a storm that Satan uh, brought on the disciples in that case. Another illustration of this is uh, found in the book of Job, chapter 1. Uh, that's Job, chapter 1, verse 18 to 19, where uh, we see uh, Satan receives permission from God uh, to attack Job's family. And so uh, in an occasion there in those verses we find that Job's sons and daughters are in their house feasting and so forth and all of a sudden a storm comes on the house and destroys the house and kills all Job's sons and daughters and, and so that was a storm that Satan uh, brought about. So God permitted it but the first thing is the first source of storms of life is number one Satan brings storms and then number two uh, there are storms that we bring on ourselves. Uh, sometimes people get into a persecution complex and say, well, you know, everybody's persecuting me and that's because I'm a Christian. Uh, but to use just the principle of 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 14 to 16, Peter says, you know, if any man suffers a Christian, uh, he can rejoice in that. But he said, we're not to suffer as a thief or as a murderer or as a busybody in other men's matters. So some storms of life are just brought on ourselves by our own foolishness. We don't, you needn't blame the devil or blame God or just get a persecution complex. They're just things that we do stupid and we just bring these storms on ourselves. 
So that's the second source of storms. And the third, third source of storms, of course, is what we're looking at here. These are storms that the Lord brings on us. And, uh, and so God is uh, allowing this storm to come here. And probably a good illustration of this is in Jonah. Uh, Jonah's book, uh, chapters 1 and 2. And we find that God has sent Jonah to go to Nineveh. And so Jonah runs out of the will of God. And uh, he pays his fare and takes a ship and flees to Tarshish. And so what did the Lord do? The Lord used a storm to bring Jonah back to his will. And uh, this was via the great fish in the three days journey. But so God raised up that storm. He used that storm to bring uh, Jonah back to his will. And so I believe this is what's happening here. God has given to Paul a word of knowledge about the coming storm. He's told the, uh, the master of the ship. The master of the ship doesn't believe that. The master of the ship thinks he knows the seas. But uh, Paul knows the master of, of the seas. And uh, uh, the, the ship owner doesn't. So... God permits this storm uh, in Paul, uh, Paul's experience here en, en route to Rome. And so that's uh, always something to keep in mind. Uh, is this storm uh, a storm that Satan is bringing on us? Is it a storm that we bring on ourselves for our own foolishness? Or is it a storm that the Lord is bringing on us uh, in order to bring us back into his will? And uh, so that's uh, really interesting to see that. Now... After this storm, or in the middle of the storm, after long abstinence, we're, we're told in verse 21, but after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. So, you know, Paul's pretty straight here. He says, you should have listened to me. I told you way back there, and you didn't listen to me. And uh, I know you know the ocean, and you know your ship, and you know the waves and that, but I know the one who controls the waves and the one who's brought this storm. Uh, and in verse 22, Paul says, And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. In other words, cheer up. I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. So Paul is showing that though their lives were in danger, the ship would be lost, but their lives would not be. And listen to Paul's testimony here, and this is a tremendous opportunity of witness for the Lord. He says, There stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. And this angel of God said to me, Fear not, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. And so this was all in the, in the will of God, that it was God's will, as was seen on previous sessions, that uh, Paul would go to Rome, and uh, be brought before Caesar and testify in the Rome. So it was the Lord's will for Paul to go to Rome in spite of storm or shipwreck. And as we said uh, in, our, in the beginning here, our second lesson was that God can cause all things to work together for good to them that love God. So in the midst of this session, uh, season uh, uh, of hopelessness and helplessness, Paul actually gives a declaration of faith in God. So in verse 25... He says, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit we must uh, be cast upon a certain island. Now it's interesting to convert, uh, uh, compare verse 11 and verse uh, 25. In verse 11, after Paul had given the original word and said, God has showed me, or he didn't say God showed me, but he said, I perceive that the voyage is going to be a much hurt and damage and the ship and our lives will be in danger. So... In verse 11, we're told, Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship 
more than those things which were spoken by Paul. In verse 25, Paul says, I believe God. So between verse 11, we either believe the master and the, uh, and the owner of the ship, or we believe God. The centurion believed the master of the ship. Uh, Paul believed the master of the sea. So I believe God. And what a declaration of faith in the midst of the storm. And uh, you see, the issue is now, what they would not believe in time of peace, they now will believe in time of storm. And how often that has happened in people's lives. God allows storms to come, and uh, in the midst of the storm, they suddenly believe in God. It's like in wartime. Many people, uh, many soldiers went to the law, uh, went to the war zone as atheists, and when uh, bombs are falling around them and everything like that, they suddenly uh, believe God. So many times we have to, we believe in storm what we don't believe in a time of peace. And of course you'll notice that Paul said the angel of God stood by him and the Hebrews is very clear on that that uh, we're told that the angels uh, are sent as ministering spirits to them who are heirs of salvation. And it must have been a tremendous uh, assurance to Paul in the midst of the storm also that, um, uh, that this angel appeared to him and told him you're going to be brought to Caesar, you're going to witness before uh, Caesar at Rome and it's all in the will of God. And uh, so we see here that um, the, the, the people on the ship were actually blessed because of Paul. And of course you've got Aristarchus there and Luke, we must remember, and I'm sure that they were praying together and waiting on the Lord uh, during the storm while everybody's working hard to, uh, to uh, keep the ship uh, intact. One of the big lessons here is that the people in the world are blessed whether they realize it or not, because of the people of the Lord. And we can think of uh, Laban, uh, he was blessed because of Jacob there. And we can think of Egypt and Pharaoh, uh, Egypt and Pharaoh was blessed because of Joseph, and I believe here it is again, that the ship's passengers and the prisoners were blessed because of Paul's presence. And uh, whether the world likes to believe or not, the world is actually blessed because of the presence of the church. Now as you go down to verse 27, 29, uh, when the fourteenth night was come, as they were driven up and down in Adria about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded and found it twenty fathoms, and when they'd gone a little further, they sounded again and found it fifteen fathoms. And so there's fear of falling upon the rocks there, and so they cast out the anchors and uh, wish for the day. Now, it's an interesting theme here. You'll notice the midnight hour. And this theme of the midnight hour goes right through the Bible and it's always significant at the end of the age. You'll find that in Matthew 25, the, the, the wise and foolish virgins heard the midnight cry. Job 34 and verse 20 says, The people shall be troubled at midnight. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 62, the psalmist says, At midnight will I rise to give thanks. And here we see at the midnight hour uh, in Acts 16:25, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God at the midnight hour. And, and here again at the midnight hour they sense that they're nearing some land. So God often used the midnight hour to get through to people. And I believe it's prophetic of the end of the age. Uh, and so that's what we see here. 
Now from verse 30 on to uh, verse 38, we see that Paul actually, he becomes the master of the ship. He assumes control and uh, responsibility for the ship. So the ship is being tossed near the land. And you'll notice here in these verses that the shipmen, they were about to flee out, the, out of the ship and uh, uh, had let the boat down on the sea and making out they were casting out anchors and so Paul just takes command here and he said to the centurion and to the soldiers except these abide in the ship you cannot be saved and so uh, the soldiers cut off all the ropes and let let the boat fall off and uh, so Paul now exhorts them to uh, uh, have something to eat and so he took bread and it's interesting here Paul took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all and when he'd broken it he began to eat and so uh, they were encouraged by Paul's example there and uh, you'll notice that there were in all there were 276 persons on the ship and so Paul is in charge and he's had a chance to witness to them, to them all as you go through the rest of the chapter, after they'd lightened everything and the, uh, the forefront of the ship stuck fast and the hinder part, they were smashed to pieces with the violence of the waves. So all the souls were saved. They all got to the land and uh, not one person was lost. And so all this was through the Apostle Paul. And uh, you'll notice in the rest of the chapter that the souls actually wanted to kill the prisoners lest any should escape. But the centurion, he was now out to, uh, you know, save Paul, and he listened to Paul now, and so he just recommended that everybody who could swim to shore to do so, and others to get there on broken pieces of the ship. And so, uh, according to the word of the Lord, not one soul was lost. And uh, what a testimony that must have been. I wonder how uh, many of those 276 persons ever accepted the Lord Jesus as their saviour, but they certainly had a testimony of Paul. Interesting to read uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul lists all his sufferings and what he went through, sufferings of the churches and false brethren, and then he says, thrice I suffered shipwreck. And so here's Paul, Paul's probably his uh, third and uh, final shipwreck here. Now I believe there's uh, some lessons that we can apply, you know, first the natural, then the spiritual. And you'll notice that the Holy Spirit has given a lot of details to Paul's journey to Rome. So I like to liken this uh, uh, situation to the world. The world system is like this old ship and is in the greatest storm of history as the end of the age comes upon us. There is no hope of saving the ship, the world system. But God has his witnesses in the winds and the storm who believe God. And the only hope of escape and salvation from the wreck of the world system is to believe God and the witnesses of his servants. The crash comes at the midnight hour, but those who trust God and his word will be safe. And so there's some uh, good lessons in uh, chapter 27. All right, now let's go to chapter 28 for our last number of moments here. As you look at chapter 28, they came uh, to the island. Paul didn't know what the island was that they would be cast on, but looking at the map here, they were cast upon the island of Melita. And uh, here God is going to use uh, Paul in ministry here uh, in spite of it. So it comes to that thing, as we said, all things work together for good to them that love God. And so uh, we see, see them on the island of Melita. Now, as you look at uh, verse uh, 11, we find they were at least uh, three months on the island of Melita, and 
God was going to cause all things to work together for good. If it hadn't have been for the shipwreck, and yet it was not you know, God's perfect will, but God permitted it to happen, uh, the island of Melita at that time may not have heard the gospel. And so think of how the Lord worked everything together for good here. We have, first of all, uh, Paul's testimony to all on the ship. I'm sure all the 276 persons, the prisoners, as well as the centurion, the master of the ship, and the the uh, ship hands all heard the gospel through the Apostle Paul. Now, as you uh, look at chapter 28, the uh, barbarous people, or actually the island people, they kindled a fire and received everybody because of the rain and the cold. And uh, the big Apostle Paul here, servant spirit, he is, even gathers a bundle of sticks and puts them on the fire. And of course, as he puts the sticks on the fire, out came a, a, a viper and fastened on his hand and the barbarians saw the venomous beast hanging on his hand. They said, this guy must be a murderer. And so uh, though he's escaped the sea, yet he's going to be bitten by the serpent. And so we're told that Paul shook the beast off into the fire and felt no harm. I'm sure that there's a natural and a spiritual, but let's go on here. Uh, when they saw that he should have swollen up or fallen down dead suddenly, after a, a while, a great while, they saw no harm come to him. They changed their minds and said he was a god. Uh, this is uh, typical of human nature. Human nature will either decry you or they'll deify you. So one minute they say Paul's a murderer, next minute they call him a god and want to worship him. So, you know, this is human nature. Uh, just uh, decry you or deify you. And, uh, but uh, the thing is that's interesting here, let's go on to verse uh, 7 a little bit. In the same quarters were the possessions... Uh, of the chief man of the army, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius uh, lay sick of a fever and of a, of a, uh, a, uh, a blood condition here. And so Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. And when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. And so... Uh, if we look at Mark chapter 16, what is happening here is really some of the signs following from Mark 16 because in Mark 16, uh, the Lord Jesus said, These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. And if they lay hands on the sick, they shall recover. And the Lord confirming the word. So here on the Isle of uh, Melita, uh, Paul takes up a serpent. It doesn't hurt him. It goes into the fire, and I believe ultimately it's a picture, uh, we can say, of Satan, the great old serpent being cast into the lake of fire. Paul has healing ministry here. He lays hands on the sick and prayed for him and healed him, and then others are healed in the island, and then the necessities are provided. And so uh, Melita would not have heard the gospel but for this shipwreck. So as we're saying, God worked everything together for good. Uh, uh, in his purposes here. Now we only have a few more minutes and so as we go on from verse 11 through to 16 we find that they uh, take another ship of Alexandria and that was on the way to Rome and so uh, they go and stop at several places, uh, Syracuse for three days and then um, uh, Petroleae, they found brethren, they were there for seven days and they went towards Rome. And then it's a very interesting little sentence here in verse 15 when they get to uh, API Forum and the three taverns and you can see this on the map here uh, when Paul got there and the, and the ship they, they saw some of the brethren who came to meet them 
and uh, Paul thanked God and took courage and that's a, a very simple but beautiful word that even the great apostle Paul needed encouragement so he thanked God and took courage uh, we remind ourselves of 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6 David encouraged himself in the Lord we, we think of Joshua chapter 1 that over three, three or four times the Lord said to Joshua be strong and of good courage and one of the greatest weapons that uh, Satan has against the church particularly ministry it may not always cause us to fall in other areas but he causes us to be discouraged and so Paul thanked God and took courage <coughs> Then uh, in verse 16, we Paul, uh, see that Paul is given over to uh, custody uh, of a soldier there, waiting for his trial. Now, as we go on to verse 17 through to 20, after three days, Paul uh, calls the chief of the Jews together, and he explains what happened back in Jerusalem, and that uh, he wasn't doing anything against the customs of the, of the fathers, and he was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem in the hands of the Romans, and uh, he, when, when he'd been examined, he would have been let go because there was nothing, uh, no cause of death in him. But the Jews spake against it, and so Paul said, out of desperation, he was constrained to appeal to Caesar. Not that he wanted to accuse his nation, but uh, just for his protection here, and yet over and above it all, uh, it was God's will that Paul go to Rome. Now, in verse 20, we have a very interesting expression. Paul says, For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. The hope of Israel was particularly the hope of the resurrection. And uh, in Acts chapter 26, Paul has referred to the hope of the promise of God to the fathers. In fact, uh, this word hope is used quite a, little, uh, a lot by the Apostle Paul. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Titus 1.2, uh, hope of eternal life. Titus 2 verse 13, looking for that blessed hope. Hebrews chapter 6, we have a hope that is as an anchor of the soul and it enters in the veil. The apostle Peter says we are begotten again to a lively hope. And in Acts 24 verse 15, we find that this hope is the hope of resurrection. Now, as we look at verse 20, Paul uh, uh, says that uh, it was for the hope of Israel that he was bound with this chain. Uh, very interesting thought here that uh, when he writes to, T uh, to Timothy years later uh, in the pastoral epistle in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he speaks of a, a brother by the name of Onesiphorus, uh, that when he came to Rome, he sought Paul out, and when he saw Paul, Paul commended him. He said, he was not ashamed of my chain. And you know how we would feel if we met the Apostle Paul and we saw him with a chain on him as a prisoner, would we be ashamed of his chain? And uh, interesting that though Paul is referred to here as a prisoner, when he writes his epistle to the Ephesian church, uh, he actually says, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of the Lord. So everybody is somebody's prisoner. We're either a prisoner of the Lord or a prisoner of sin, a prisoner of Satan. I would rather be a prisoner of the Lord. Everybody said amen. <coughs> amen. All right, now let's just go to the, uh, the final comments of, uh, of this chapter here. Paul has opportunity to witness to the Jews 
Uh, it was spoken of as a sect and it was spoken against everywhere but you'll notice what Paul testified to them in, in verse 23 he expounded and testified the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning to evening so we think of the law and the prophets on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, Moses representing the law appeared on the Mount Elijah representing the prophets appeared on the Mount so Moses representing the law and Elijah the prophets and so Paul expounds to them out of their own scriptures the law and the prophets and uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus open to the disciples the law and the Psalms and the prophets what is the end result in Rome because if you check in Romans chapter 1 when Paul had written his epistle and uh, whether this epistle had been written a couple of years before the shipwreck and had gotten to Rome but he says uh, he thanked God for their faith which is spoken of throughout the whole world and in Romans 1.10 he says uh, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you well it didn't look a very prosperous journey uh, having a shipwreck but it was a prosperous journey for what had happened at Melita and the fact that he got there alive and other people were saved through his testimony so he says uh, by the will of God and he says I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established so that's Paul's desire in coming to Rome what are the end results in Rome some believe and some believe not this is amongst the Jews so everybody's into two groupings there's no neutral ground either we believe or we don't believe and they discussed that there was a lot of disagreement and so Paul ends up giving one final word to the Jews in Rome and it's probably one of the most quoted passages from the prophet Isaiah and he says in verse 26 this is exactly what the Holy Spirit spake of our father saying go to his people and saying hearing you shall hear and you'll not understand seeing you shall see and not perceive for the heart of this people is waxed gross their ears are dull of hearing their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and uh, should be converted and I should heal them and so Paul says I want you to know that the salvation of God is now sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it in all of the Gospels except the, well even the Gospel of John all of them quote this verse from Isaiah that the Jews would have ears to hear and not hear eyes to see and they wouldn't see and a heart to perceive but they wouldn't understand as we often say there's none so deaf as those who don't want to see none so blind as those who don't want to see and none so uh, dumb as those who don't want to understand and so we bring this tremendous book to a close Paul has fulfilled in his ministry what he wrote in Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek all through the book of Acts as we've seen Paul has gone to the synagogues he's preached to the Jews first and then has turned to the Gentiles and now the final word that we have is uh, Paul saying well this is exactly what the prophets said about you so Paul has fulfilled the, uh, the word of the Lord we see that the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles are grafted into the good olive tree uh, the oil tree the anointing of the Holy Spirit and so we bring this uh, tremendous book to a close and I'd like to read the summary here thus the book of Acts opens with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
upon the Jewish nation and closes with the rejection of the gospel by that nation and Paul turning to the Gentiles. It began with Jerusalem and ends up with Rome. You'll notice that Jewry as a nation, they'd rejected the ministries of John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, the early church believers consisting of Jews and Gentiles, the Apostle Paul. The gospel had gone from Jerusalem to Rome, from the religious center of the then known world to the political center of the then known world. And I believe that both Rome and Jerusalem come into prominence in the last days before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts, as we conclude here, covers of a period about 30 years from AD 34 to AD 64. Approximately, it was only about six years or so that God was going to permit Rome to destroy Jerusalem. The temple would be destroyed, the city would be destroyed, the land would be desolate, and Jewry would be scattered to the four corners of the earth until the times of the Gentiles had been fulfilled. And uh, what a picture that we have in our overview that the gospel began at Jerusalem, then went to Judea and Samaria, and now to the uttermost parts of the known earth. When Jesus comes a second time, he's going to find a glorious church, a church that's going to continue and finish the book of Acts. And so I trust that as we've shared in these series together over the months that you've received a lot of lessons from the book of Acts. And as I said at the beginning, the book of Acts has no amen to it because it is still being written in the history of the church throughout the various nations of the earth. And the final is when John sees... Uh, The Lamb on the throne, he sees out of every kindred, every tongue, every tribe and nation, uh, those who have come to birth through the death of the Lamb, the redeemed, singing, Thou art worthy, for you have redeemed us unto God by your blood. This is the church. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.